Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello again, and thank you for putting The Next Track in your podcast listening schedule. I know that's a valuable slice of your time, and we appreciate being a part of it. This is episode number 22, and it's being brought to you by my site, DougScripts.com, the home of Doug's Apple Scripts for iTunes. Check out the updated tools for the latest versions of iTunes and Mac OS X 12 Sierra. I want to take the opportunity here to remind listeners up front that if you have ideas for topics that you'd like us to try and cover, let us know. We're always trying to plan future shows and, and of course, like hearing the feedback. So if it's not your first day on the Internet and you're not too busy, there's a contact form at thenexttrack.com. It's a webmail form, but we respond with real email. TheNextTrack.com. And this week, we did get some reader feedback. So in this week's reader feedback, we got a question regarding last week's show about subwoofers. And Neil wrote in, he asked, if you need a big driver to get the low frequencies, how do my SoundMagic E10 earphones manage to get down to 15 hertz? And he says he's tested with the online tone generator to confirm that it does go to 15 hertz. Andy Doe replied to the comment, and basically he points out that it's an oversimplification to say that you need big speakers to make low notes. He says tiny speakers can reproduce very low frequencies, but their design typically means that they can only produce these sounds very quietly. So if the earbuds are in your ears, you don't need anywhere near as much volume to get the bass that you do from a subwoofer. A subwoofer is radiating that bass through your entire home, through floors and walls, and a lot of that energy gets absorbed, and which is probably why subwoofers have to be so powerful. So Neil's original post and Andy Doe's reply can be found in the comments section for the episode number 21 show notes. That's the subwoofer episode, episode number 21, at thenexttrack.com. What else you got? There's some other fascinating news this week. The day before this episode was released, we actually had to record this little segment to drop in the news that Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize in Literature. Yeah, and it's the first time I guess you'd say a pop star has won a, a Nobel Prize. Yeah, so this is what a lot of people are going to say. Is he a pop star or is he a poet? Anyone who's read my work and listens to this show knows I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan. Uh, I would certainly argue that he's a poet and that his lyrics deserve the attention of poetry. A lot of people are familiar with, you know, Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man and The Answers Blowing in the Wind. And that's not poetry. These are songs. These are very good songs and they're well written. But you don't need to go much further afield in his work to find some songs that are modernist poetry. Look at Desolation Row on the Highway 61 Revisited album. Compare that to T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland. It's very, you know, it's got that same type of imagery. Look at Visions of Johanna on Bond on Bond which again has these lyrics that can be read in about a dozen different ways. And all along the Watchtower, it's full of biblical imagery. It, it's got references to, to all sorts of things. It's way beyond the, you know, yeah, yeah, hey, hey, kiss me, baby, whatever lyrics that, that pop music is known for. I remember being a teenager uh, with my friends listening to music, and we understood the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and Argent and anybody else that we were listening to on the radio. But a Dylan song would come on, and I remember thinking, this is inscrutable nonsense. He, I mean, a poet, you know, this is he's sitting around making this stuff up. I, I definitely remember that being our, our operating theory on Bob Dylan. How could this guy sell so many records? You know? Well, he never actually sold lots of records. He was never a really big-selling artist as a musician, but he was a guy who you might see on TV playing a song, a, a scruffy kid with curly hair and a guitar, he did not look like a poet. But then Hambo didn't look like a poet. T.S. Eliot looked like a banker. So it's really hard. You know, you can't judge an album by its cover, can you? No. 
Well, so this brings up some other Bob Dylan news, which I was going to mention anyway. Ten years ago, there was a documentary released called No Direction Home, which was about Bob Dylan's career through 1966 when he had a motorcycle accident and when he sort of withdrew for a while. There's an updated version being released at the end of the month. It's got two hours more footage than the original release, and it's got some extra interviews, performances, and all that. For the first time, it will be available on Blu-ray, and it'll also be available in a digital download from the iTunes store. Related, there is another box set of Dylan music that's due out. It's all the available recordings from his 1966 tour. Now, there are two reasons for this. One is that Sony has been releasing a number of copyright releases of Dylan performances because if they're out for more than 50 years without an official release or something in Europe, that makes them fair game for bootleggers. And so uh, for 62, 63, 64, 65, there have been copyright releases, and this is another one. But it's 36 CDs of Live Dylan from 1966. It's really affordable. I think it's about $150 on Amazon, which, you know, that's the price of a classical box set of that size, not a rock box set. So there are... Let's see, I'm looking, some of the some of the concerts are on two discs and some of them are on one disc, so I guess it's about 20, 25 concerts. There are a couple of audience recordings, but all of the um, UK tour is soundboard recordings with a couple of audience drop-ins, I think. There's not going to be a lot of difference from one show to the next, but you're going to find a few concerts in there worth listening to. For the Bob Dylan fan on your Christmas list. So that's the news for this week, and we have an interesting topic this week, at least I hope. A lot of you think it's interesting. So I'm looking at my desk right now at these two iPod classics that will not leave. For some reason, I, I, I find that I have to keep them right there on my desktop just in case I need them for something, which I'm probably not. Although I do fire them up and try to use them in different projects every now and then. But there they are, old iPod classics. They, they're, they're still great. They're still quite serviceable. They are. And so a number of the topics for this show come from discussions that Doug and I have. And we're talking about our own music listening and our hardware and all that. And so last week, we just sort of got into a discussion of the iPod Classic. And we each have an iPod Classic, I guess, what is it, sixth generation, seventh generation, the latest one, 160 gigs. It's a little bit heavier than an iPhone, not much. It's a little bit smaller. And so we thought we'd talk about this because the, the iPod Classic is, well, it's really the device that changed not only Apple, but that changed music listening. Boom, first decent MP3 player. You could put stuff on it that you ripped from CD, and then later you didn't even need the CDs because you could buy music files from the store and put them on there, and then later they added photos and videos. But I got to tell you a funny story that illustrates how it's really not so modern anymore. You know, I was prepping to do this show, and I uh, charged up the uh, the iPod, and my thumb automatically went to the screen <laughs> trying to scroll around like it was a touch screen. I said, oh, yeah, that's right. This is an iPod. And then uh, I scrolled down and picked a song and hit play, and I'm wondering, why can't I hear anything? <laughs> it's like, because there's no speaker in an iPod. <laughs> so I had to plug the phones into it. So <laughs> it was just amazing how uh, how primitive it seemed, and it was kind of like a, a back-to-the-future moment, you know? Yeah, so I used the term iPod Classic, and, and so did Doug, but... What we're talking about here is the original iPod. Let's assume that the iPod Classic is all these hard drive-based iPods with a circular controller, from the very first original iPod to the last one. I have to say, I think the click wheel is a brilliant interface element. It's a brilliant way to interact with something like this. In the absence of actually having a touchscreen, the fact that you can just roll your thumb around something to scroll through a list and then to change volume and, and all that, 
it's got four buttons at the cardinal points, which is really logical. Menu, play, pause, and then previous and next. There's something attractive about the minimal simplicity of the iPod Classic. And I don't use mine often, but every once in a while I take it out and I plug in some headphones and I sit around and I put some music on and I spin the wheel and pick some artists and I put it on shuffle. And I think one of the advantages is that this is a single purpose device that you listen to music on it and that's it. You don't, I mean, you can look at photos and you can watch some videos, true. But you listen to music, you don't have any internet access, you don't have Twitter, you don't have email, you don't get text messages on it. In the same way that I bought a CD player about a year ago to listen to CDs while I'm at work in my office, I kind of like the idea of this single purpose device. Of course, when I'm out and about and I've got my iPhone in my pocket, I'm very happy that I've got music on it. But there is still something really positive about having a device just for playing music. Yeah, I had it hooked up one time to its own little uh, amp and speakers for a while. And uh, I've used it in the car too for music. And, uh, you know, here's the thing. I, I remember watching, I'm pretty sure I saw the last season of The Sopranos using the, the TV shows I bought on the store and I played it on the iPod and I had it hooked up to the TV, but I, how did I do that? I don't remember how I did that. Yeah, you could, so you could put it into, do you remember when they had the dock that had the little inserts that came out so, to, to fit the different iPods? That's right, You yeah. You could buy a cable that went into the back and that went into a... What, what do they call it? YUV component cable? Yeah, something like that. And you could connect that to a TV. This is pre-HDMI, obviously. Yeah, right. And then I take the uh, headphone jack and plug it into the receiver, and that's how we listen. Yeah. Right. That was an ordeal. It was a bit complex, but yeah. it was doable. And we're talking about SD video, not HD. So it didn't take up that much space. And I, I guess there wasn't any throughput problems with the cabling and, and all that. Yeah, I don't remember there ever being a problem, but it was a hassle to set up. I mean, you know, the iPod's a portable device. You got all these cables coming out of it. and Plus, you know, you, you normally didn't leave it by the TV. It's You had it with you. So it just became a hassle to set up, but it worked. So what was your first iPod, Doug? I had the first one. I still have it. It's a paperweight now, though. It doesn't uh, doesn't do anything. I uh, probably should get rid of it. And then I've seen a parade of minis and shuffles and nanos as my wife and daughter upgraded. And uh, I've, I, like I said, I have a, a classic and I have a video iPod. So, so my first was, uh, when we were talking last week, I thought my first one was the second iPod, but it wasn't. It was the third. It's called iPod, open parentheses, dock connector, close parentheses. It was the one with the four buttons in a line above the scroll wheel. Right. And those four buttons had a little orange light behind them when it was on. I think I still have it, actually, in my box of iPods. And around the same time, so this was the iPod I had when I wrote my first iPod book called iPod and iTunes Garage, which I know is on your bookshelf right behind you. Yes, it is. And at shortly after that, the iPod mini came out in January 2004. And I also have an iPod mini someplace, a green iPod mini. The iPod mini was cool, but it wasn't that much smaller than the regular iPod. It wasn't even half the size or weight. It was about two-thirds of the size and two-thirds of the weight. Yeah, I had a mini. I, I, I liked it. I liked the smallness of it. it. It was just enough. Held enough music. It was good. We had a lot of them, actually, you know. So anyone who has a Mac or an iOS device, if you ever want to look up this stuff, you can find a free app called Mac Tracker. It lists all the information you need to know. So if I look up the iPod mini, it was released in January 2004. Um, it weighed 3.6 ounces. And comparing that to the iPod dock connector, which weighed 5.6 ounces, that is quite a difference. But the iPod mini only had a four gig hard drive. You could get a six. You could get a six too. Well, that was later. 
That was the later versions. The first version was only a four gig, and then I think it eventually went up to an eight. And then, of course, they went to the iPod Nano, and there were seven different iPod Nanos. I believe that's right, yes. With with a whole bunch of different form factors. The, the early ones were a sort of simplification of the iPod Mini, and then they had the squat one, and then they had the, the slim tall one, and then they had the one that you could kind of wear as a watch. And then they came out with the one that's still sold today, which is a small 16 gigabyte device with a touchscreen. So does that have some flavor of iOS in it? How does that work? No, 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 it's not. It's not iOS. It's like an iOS inspired interface, but it's not exactly, I don't, technically it's, it's different. It's not iOS. So, so these iPods, and so I'm, I'm going to link in the show notes to a Macworld article I wrote in 2014, July 2014, which was when Apple either announced or was due to announce the end of the iPod Classic. Is it that long ago already? Yeah, two years ago, 2014. Right. Summer of 2014. Yeah. Let's see. If we look at iPod Classic, yeah, September 2014 was when it was announced. And so I wrote an article in July because all the rumors were suggesting that it was going to die. The iPod Classic, and again, I'm using this in the broad sense of the word, the, the, the one with the hard drive, the, the big one. It's what brought us all into the digital music revolution. It's what brought Apple into the digital music revolution. It's, it's the hardware that made Apple the company it is today, that, that made Apple more than just a computer company. Yeah, well, it also became part of their digital hub strategy. Yes, it was part of the digital hub, but I don't know if the digital hub was actually created from the iPod or if the iPod was created from the digital hub. Well, I think you'd have to say that you know, even historically speaking, the iMac was the beginning of the uh, digital hub. Good point. Okay. But um, it was mostly focused on video and not so much on music, right? So, uh, you know, the music came later with, uh, with iTunes and right. the iPod. Right. You know, let's take a break here and we'll be back with our discussion on the iPod in just a minute. As you probably know, I am the Doug part of Doug's Apple Scripts for iTunes. And if you haven't visited DougScripts.com in a while and you've got some older versions of scripting tools or applications at your house, I encourage you to have a look through your scripts folder and then come check out the latest versions of those tools at DougScripts.com. I do frequently post updates. Now, whether you're editing track tag data, managing playlists, or cleaning up your entire library, you'll be good to go when you've updated to iTunes 12.5 and Mac OS Sierra, or if you plan to. I think you'll be pretty surprised with how much work you can do and time that you'll save when it comes to managing your iTunes media library. The site is easy to use, the tools are easy to find, and downloads employ the latest Apple-recommended security. But best of all, if you're a particular iTunes user, you'll find any number of tools to make managing your music less of a chore so that you can spend more time enjoying your media. Doug's Apple Scripts for iTunes, it's at DougScripts.com. I looked into the history of the iPod and iTunes a while ago for another Macworld article about the history of iTunes. And what was really interesting was that when Apple released the iTunes, they had absolutely no plans to release the iPod. That came later. And it was a very sudden thing. And, and basically, they had the idea of iTunes. And, and yeah, remember the campaign they did, the ad campaign, Rip, Mix, Burn? Right. So the idea was that in the early iMacs that had CD drives, you could rip your CDs, you could make playlists, and you could burn them to CD because they had writable CD drives. And the iPod came after that. And it seems almost that it was an afterthought. And it was actually produced relatively quickly. 
I think the iPhone was in production for several years before it was released, but the iPod was less than a year. It started like in February and it was released in October of 2001. Yeah, it was eight months. Yeah, yeah, it was very quick. But this iPod is what changed everything for Apple and what changed everything for us because yeah, I had a MP3 player before that, the kind where you had to drag files and folders and, you know, it held, what, 256 megabytes or something, you know, it's a tiny little thing. And then they sure, came out with this yeah. 40, so it was five gigabyte. The first one was five gigabytes. The second one was 10. And the first one that I had was 40 gigabytes. So this was two years later. I think what's really interesting is how popular music became in part because of the iPod. Now, lots of people had Walkman-type devices, but I think the iPod made it possible to have so much more music that people who really cared about music all of a sudden were walking around with their music libraries in their pockets, not just a couple of tapes. Well, Mac users were. How, how long was it before they had the Windows version come on? Because that's really when it exploded. Yeah, that's when the sales took off, and I believe that was a year later. So October 2001 was when the, the first one was released, and it was sometime in 2002, I believe, when it became available for Windows. So uh, I was talking to my partner um, a couple months ago about the iPod, and I, this might have been when I wrote this history of iTunes article or whatever. And she was saying to me, she has a daughter. She was saying to me that when the iPod mini came out, since it came in different colors, this was when tech became cool for girls. Now, I never really thought of that because, first of all, I tend not to separate tech for girls and for boys. But it's a good point. It's that all of a sudden it wasn't a geeky tech device. It was something that anyone could buy and anyone could use because it was so simple. And so the first iPod mini came in a number of colors, silver, gold, blue, pink, and green. And, that, and that's not that different from the colors we have now for um, the backs of the iPhone. You know, I'm not so sure about the tech for girls thing, because by that time, tech was pretty ubiquitous for all kids. I mean, cameras were really big, you know, and cell phones were really big before the iPhone. So when the iPod came along, I think I don't think there's any question that they certainly marketed it to girls yeah, so, so the iPod in general had, had an interesting history. And looking through the history of the iPod, its ascent and its descent also shows us the history of technology. So first it just did music, and then it had a color display and it did photos. Then they added videos, and of course along the way they did two U2 special editions. But those were just uh, iPod classics, weren't they? They were iPod classic. Well, they were the same as the existing iPod, it's just they were in black with the red uh, click wheel. That was the only difference. So the iPod Classic, again, in the broad sense of the word, it grew and it grew and it grew, and then came 2007. Yep, that would be when your iPhone came out. Yep, there. yep. So I was doing research uh, for this program, and I went back and looked at my own site to see what I had released as far as iPod stuff. And the iPod actually works really well, responds really well with Apple Script and iTunes, uh, unlike iOS devices, which is kind of touch and go. But anyway, it seems like the winter of 2007 was about when all the iPod stuff started to drop off. Yeah. And so in September of 2007, they renamed this iPod, the iPod Classic, and, and it's the name that it would hold for years. And I guess this was making the distinction between the iPhone, which if anyone who remembers the presentation that Steve Jobs made, he talked about the three things that it does. It was an iPod, it was a phone, and it was an internet device. Um, so the iPhone was technically one-third iPod. And the iPod Classic barely changed in the years from 2007 until, when was the last one? 2014, when it was discontinued. The only thing that changed was the capacities and, and a couple of colors, I think, were, were changed. It was 
80 or 160 gigabytes when it came out in 2007. Then there was a 120 gigabyte model which came out in 2008 and and that was surprising why did they go down in space and then in late 2009 they came back up with the 160 gigabyte model and that was the final version and that lasted for five years and until they killed it off when we were talking about this last week we looked on amazon and the prices that people are getting for ipod classics some of them that say they're new in boxes are really quite impressive you know four or five hundred dollars for something whose final price was 249 dollars. well i'm glad i kept mine i mean like i said i don't use them a lot but i told you i keep them right in front of me on the desktop so um you know they're worth keeping and you can still buy docks and connectors and things that work with the 30 pin connector you could probably get lots of those old docks and speakers really cheap now because you know we haven't been using the 30 pin connector since it was a little bit after that when they got rid of the 30 pin connector i believe it was so the the classic stopped being sold in 2014 i'm trying to think with the ipod touch fifth generation might still have had a 30-pin connector. So there were still uh, um, a couple of devices that still used that old connector. And, of course, the iPhone until a few years ago. Um, so you can still get lots of those devices. You probably get really good ones on eBay, actually. But you go back to the iPod Classic and you look at it and you push a button, it wakes up. It's got a battery that lasts forever. It charges really fast. You spin the thing or, hey, shuffle songs. What, what do we get? If I shuffle songs... Takes a minute for it to start shuffling. I'm always looking for ways to repurpose my iPods, and for a while I was using it in the car because the car uh, can understand, can talk to the iPod. You plug the iPod into the USB jack, and the car, I guess, reads. Uh, well, it doesn't read the actual files on the on the iPod, but no, I think it reads like the equivalent of a library file that's on the device. Yeah, and and that information becomes available on the display, and of course, I can control the iPod with buttons on the steering wheel and that kind of thing. Um, it only works for a couple of my iPods, I guess, because that's the limitation of the software in the car. But uh, it's one of those things where every so often I'll, I'll, I'll be inspired to say, hey, I'll repurpose this. And the car is one of the places it usually happens. So, you know, it's great on long trips. Yeah, the, the final iPod Classic had up to 36 hours of music playback. That's pretty good. 36 yeah. hours. That's yeah. a lot. It says that it takes about four hours to charge and it has a fast charge mode. In two hours, it charges to 80% capacity. Yeah, I, I was very surprised when I charged these up the other day and I thought for sure it would be, be sitting there for quite a long time. And it seemed to me in an hour and a half, two hours, it was, it was ready to be disconnected and okay to use. Yeah. So, so for a while, the iPod Classic was still in demand by people who had big music libraries because you couldn't put a lot of music on an iPhone. Now with the iPhone 7 that comes with a 256 gigabyte model, you can put more music on the iPhone than you could on this iPod. But this is the first one because previous iPhones were limited to 128. Now you put the operating system, some apps and all that, you've got around 100. Let's be fair, 100 gigabytes of music on a portable device is still a lot of music. But if you really want to put a lot, now you can get 256. Well, you know, you can still outfit the, uh, I think you can, you can outfit uh, an iPod Classic with uh, an SSD drive, right? You can. You can buy the components and, and you can buy kits with tools and all. And there are companies that do this. I've never really looked into it, so I'm not going to link to any in the show notes, but just Google it. You can get replacement hard drives. You can get replacement batteries if yours is old and the battery's dead. Um, and as you say, you can do a mod and you can put flash memory in it. So you could put, say, 256 and you'll have a fully functional device. It's probably pretty expensive to do that compared to the cost of the device. But if you really like it, you know, if you really want that sort of old school retro iPod, 
that this is what you need to do. And, and I kind of have a feeling in some years, iPod classics will be like vinyl. You know, I'd like to get my hands on one of those, the Bluetooth transmitters that somebody was making for it. Do you know about that? So it was a little device that, that, that connected onto the headphone jack. I had one of these. It was about the same width of the iPod. And I guess it got its power from the iPod itself through the headphone jack somehow because it didn't have a battery in it. Somehow that, there must be power that comes out of there. And so I did have one of those. I remember I also had a gizmo that I plugged into the headphone jack and it had a little flashlight. And no, in fact, it was two things. It was a laser pointer and a flashlight. Wow. And it had a little button to switch between them. So there's power that comes out of the headphone jack for, for certain devices. Do you remember the, uh, the eye trip? That was the thing that clipped on and it, it broadcast to your radio in the car or at home. Remember those? Well, well that was how most of us played our iPods in the cars back in the day before they had aux connectors or USB connectors. So I had a couple of those and basically, yeah, it's an FM transmitter. It was, so it was a cable that would go from the cigarette lighter to the iPod and in between you'd have the FM transmitter part and you'd have a little push button maybe to change the frequencies. And, and it didn't cover all the frequencies, but it covered like a bunch at the low end of the the, the dial and a bunch at the high end where there, there aren't too many stations. And that worked really good. I remember, you know, being on road trips, listening to music like that. And it also charged the iPod at the same time because you were plugged into the cigarette lighter. Yeah, you know, back in the day, so this was probably the first tech device where we started getting all these gadgets like cases and things. Raise your hand if you remember the iPod socks. I mean, that had to be the most ludicrous product Apple ever released. But cases were huge. This is where the case market took off. The accessory market for, you know, third-party headphones, sure, that existed with the Walkman and, and all that, but it didn't really grow until the iPod became such a big deal. There were lots of interesting accessories that could do things to the iPod. You'd connect it to an iPod, again, either from the headphone jack, the 30-pin dock connector. Um, yeah, those, those were good times. Good times. I, I had a lot of good <laughs> cases for the iPod. Of course... You didn't really need a case for an iPod. I used the socks. I, I'm not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed to say it. I used the socks. You know, if you have a, a, an iPod that's in good shape, you can actually uh, resell it. A lot of people are looking for parts and, and old iPods. Yeah, there's a big market on eBay for old iPod Classics in particular. I, I don't think so much the other ones, the iPod Minis and all, but the iPod Classic because of the size of the hard drive. Anyway, that was our trip down memory lane. We're not going to forget this device when we're old and on our deathbeds. We may pull this out as a reminder of when we were young. And hey, you just bought an iPod Nano. I just ordered an iPod Nano, yeah, because we were talking last week and I was saying I never had this latest iPod Nano. No, it's because of techno lust, man. Before we tell you about our next tracks, I want to remind you that this episode of The Next Track has been brought to you by Doug's Apple Scripts for iTunes, dougscripts.com. Visit soon and update your tagging and music management tools to be ready for when you update to Mac OS X 12 Sierra and iTunes 12.5. So, Kirk, what have you got lined up? My next track this week is a Bob Dylan album, and it comes as an extension of a recent show, the show we did with Elijah Wald about the blues, and, and Elijah Wald mentioned that he had co-written um, Dave Van Ronk's book, The Mayor of McDougal Street. And this was the book that was sort of the basis for the Coen Brothers movie Inside Lewin Davis. Lewin Davis, who is modeled on Dave Van Ronk, is at the Gaslight and he's playing and he's told that, you know, the New York Times is going to be there that night. And he's like really happy to be able to do a show. And he comes off and he's talking to the owner or something at the bar. And then this scruffy little guy goes on the stage and plays a couple chords and then starts playing a song and it's Bob Dylan. And if you know the history, this is when Robert Shelton was there for the New York Times and wrote this 
elogious article about Dylan, and basically it's what launched Dylan's career, and, well, Dave Van Ronk didn't have the same kind of career. So the song that's in the movie is called Farewell, and in fact, in the soundtrack of the movie was an unreleased live version of the song Farewell. I went back to Dylan's Bootleg Series Volume 9, the Whitmark Demos, 1962 to 1964, where there is another version of Farewell. Uh, the This a particular bootleg series, it's two and a half hours of basically demos that Dylan did for um, a couple of publishing companies. So he would go in with his guitar and he'd play the songs he'd written and the publishing companies would print up acetates and give them out to artists who might want to cover them. Now, when you look at this, 47 songs here, when you look at them, you've got songs like A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, Blowing in the Wind, Don't Think Twice It's All Right, Girl from the North Country, um, the Times They Are a Change, and Mr. Tambourine Man. I mean, this is an extraordinary batch of songs, 47 songs, and these were just over a couple of years. Farewell is one of the songs, which Dylan never recorded, actually. In fact, uh, probably about a third of the songs on here are, are things he never recorded. The sound isn't great. It's a basic mic in, you know, old school mono, and it's just Dylan with the guitar, and he has some false starts. But it's really interesting to listen to this album and hear these raw versions of the songs that weren't for performance that were just to present the songs. So my next track is this whole album. I've been listening to a little bit of it since I watched this movie the other day, and I'm going to go through it a couple of times this week. It's called The Bootleg Series, Volume 9, The Whitmark Demos, 1966 to 1964. What about you, Doug? What's your next track? My next track is not a Bob Dylan album. In fact, Bob Dylan isn't even on this record, surprisingly. Uh, it's an album I almost completely forgot about, actually. It's Ron Wood's first solo album called I've Got My Own Album To Do. He recorded it when the faces were still together, but nevertheless, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards and Mick Taylor of the Stones are on it. Uh, some of the guys from the faces, Ian McLaughlin and, of course, Rod Stewart is on it. George Harrison is on it. Bob Dylan, as I said, is not on it, which is unusual because they actually are friendly. Um, it's not a great record, but I remember listening to it a lot when it first came out in 1974. It's, you know, good and sloppy, and considering how many of his cohort were putting out solo albums at the time, it holds up okay. I mean, I, I just like hearing how this gang of musicians plays together anyway, so it's, it's sort of in the jamming with Edward category, if you know what I mean. Still, who doesn't like Ron Wood? And yay, here's his first solo album, for what it's worth. It's called I've Got My Own Album To Do, and that's my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.